Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, it has been a pretty heavy week this week. Um, and yet, honestly, my heart is extremely full right now. Uh, many of you, like me, may be grieving the passing of Sarah Moses. She was a, a, a cherished partner in our church, and uh, while we are mourning, we're also rejoicing because she is finally healed of ALS. Amen? And so she was welcomed into the arms of Jesus this week, and again, my heart is full because her life and her death was glorious. And so we, we celebrated her this past Friday, but I want to start things off with a call and response that I know that uh, she would have wanted from her church. So, repeat after me. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. So if I say, God is good, you say, and all the time, good, let's try it. God is good and all the time. I love it. I love it. So this past uh, week, we, we, last week, we started a brand new series called Share Life Like Christ. Or, what was it? Yeah, like Christ. <laughs> I've been saying sharing life like Jesus for, forever, but uh, same thing, he is, he is Christ. So, um, Share Life Like Christ. It, it, sharing Life Like Christ. It's a series that's focused on the interactions between Jesus and specific people in the Gospel of John. That's what we've been doing. So the heart of the series is that when we share life in Christ, we will share life like Christ. That's what I want you to see. That's what we're, we're diving into here. So in other words, when we fix our eyes on him, when we walk with him and behold him and talk with him, then we're filled with his word and his spirit, and then we'll share life like Jesus did with the world around us. So we've been looking at specific interactions that Jesus had in the Gospel of John. And last week we took some time to hone in on who it is that we're, that we're witnessing and or interacting with. Right? We let the book of John show us that Jesus is way more than just a good teacher or like a moral example. Right? Jesus is the creator of the universe. God in the flesh that is a powerful truth. And so it's important to understand when, when taken in the way that he interacts with people. And it's important to understand when he desires uh, to interact with others through us. This is God. He is God. Because he's not just calling us to share life like Jesus. God wants you to share life in Christ. Like, God wants to literally love people through you. This is what he's invited his church into. It's a profound mystery, honestly. And he perfectly demonstrates what that looks like throughout the book of John. So, last week we looked at Christ's first interactions with Andrew and, and 
uh, the disciple John. And this week I want to look at his first interactions with Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel in John 1, verse 40 through 51. That's where we're going to be this morning. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get, all right? Jesus looks beyond the masks, labels, and struggles, and speaks right to our true identity. Say identity. And he's calling us to do the same. Jesus looks beyond the masks and struggles and the labels, and he speaks right to our true identity. And he's calling us to do the same. Look with me at John 1, verse 40. We're going we're to start right there. It says this. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay? He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. All right, so Andrew is called by Jesus along with John. We saw that last week. So this is, this is what takes place the day before, right? And so they stay the night with Jesus. And then the next morning, the first thing Andrew does is find his brother Simon. And, and, and he finds him to tell him that they found the, the prophesied Savior King that they've been waiting for. First thing he does, okay? And then he brings him to Jesus. And you can tell that they're brothers, Right? Like you can see that there's this like relationship. It's like a, only a brother, I feel like, can do something like this. Like he doesn't really give Simon an option. Right? Like maybe I'm reading into this a bit, but I honestly think that this is less of an invitation and more like an abduction. Right? Andrew's like, you're coming with me. Like he just rolls up, you're coming with me. Like, so as I said before, we're going to see that these kind of themes characterize Christ's interactions throughout this series. Like, as one, of, one of those themes here is, is that the natural response to truly experiencing life in Christ is the immediate desire to share him with other people. Like a real encounter with Jesus always overflows in the desire to share what you've experienced in him with others. Right? And I don't just mean telling people about him. I'm talking about introducing people to him. There's a difference. Like even bringing people to him. Like I love that Andrew doesn't hesitate. It's like he just rolls up and says, the Messiah's here, get in. (laughs) There's no conversation there. Look, if that spark has faded in your life, then I hope to fan it into flame this morning. And if it's just a flame, then I hope to fuel it into a consuming fire this morning. Be a bringer. Now, you can't always do it like this, right? Like, let's be honest. You can't, you can't always do Like, I think Andrew's relationship was a little different with his brother, okay? Their relational equity here is, is, is a, a lifetime of trust that allows Andrew to just say, he's here, let's go. Just trust me, you'll see what I mean when you meet him, right? But most of our relationships don't have that level of trust going on. Like they require a little more nuance than this. And I'll be honest and say that my natural inclination is to just do whatever it takes, like bound and gag and get them <laughs> there, right? You know, like that's kind of... Just get them to Jesus. This is whatever it takes. Like, we're going to a party. Church, right? 
And, <laughs> um, I, I know people that have come to Christ that way, actually a lot. But, um, but I, I, I hear me. Like I, I also often realize, and I, and I want you to see this too, that what it takes more often than not is patience and the consistent invitation to come and see. A little bit of stubbornness to keep inviting. Like either way, though, just as Jesus invited Andrew to come and see, he's doing the same here for his brother. Like Andrew immediately shares life in Christ, just like Christ, just like he did. Remember, this is what Jesus said to Andrew. Come and see. Just as Jesus brings Andrew to the father, Andrew's bringing Simon, his brother, to Jesus. Right? So this is what we do when we invite people to church or to community group. We're simply just to invite them to read the word of God and pray. We're saying, come and see. Come, come and see. Like it's an invitation to come and see the body of Christ. It's way more than just bringing somebody to an event to listen to some guy talk or hear some music. Right? Like it's an invitation to come and interact with those who are interacting with Jesus and are filled with his spirit. That's powerful. Like it's not an invitation to interact with perfect people. It's an invitation to interact with people who are perfectly loved because of the perfect grace of God that we've all experienced in Christ Jesus. That's what it's, that's the experience. That's the invitation. Come and see those who are not perfect. Come and see those who struggle with sin and fall short of the mark. And come and see the perfect grace and the perfect love of God on display. Come and see what it's like to be perfectly forgiven and perfectly rooted in the secure identity of being sons and daughters of the Most High King. That's the invitation. Come and see what it looks like to share life in Christ the risen Lord. This is the local church. This is the bride of Christ. This is the body of Christ upon the earth. She's not perfect, but she is the perfect instrument for proclaiming and demonstrating the grace of God because she's not perfect. Right? We say this all the time, and I'm going to continue to do it. Because this world gets it twisted all the time. But that's exactly the message that a fallen and broken world needs to hear and see and experience. Sometimes people think, you know, if I can just get them to church, that's all I need to do. Right? I've even heard pastors preach this way. Right? You ever heard this? Just, just get them to church. We'll do the rest. <laughs> I do not like that. I do not like that. And here's why. Because <laughs> you are the church. You are the church. Like, we're not just bringing people to a sermon. The sermon is pointing people to Jesus, and that sermon starts with your invitation. And it's not complete without your follow-up. That's why church doesn't end when we end the service. Right? That's why you can't close a church. It's a weird thing. Right? Like, it's not just about the sermon or the music. It's about the embrace. It's about the follow-up. If you're here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, ask somebody. This happens through Sunday morning and throughout the week in community groups or just coffee with people and reading his word and praying or just interacting with people who are filled with the spirit who love and are loved by Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. 
right? So I'm willing to bet that for a personality like Simon, it probably required a bit more like bringing <laughs> than just inviting, right? Like, it's clear that Andrew knows his brother well, because as we're going to see in the rest of the Bible, pretty much, Simon's a bit hard-headed. <laughs> he knew he just needed to get him there. But verse 42, we see, or, or so in verse 42 here, we see that he brought him to Jesus. And now I love this interaction. I love this interaction. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In English, it means rock. Right out of the gate, he changed his name to rock. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about like Dwayne Johnson type rock. I'm talking about the rock, the real one, the rock of our salvation. That's the identity he's calling upon in Peter. He's not saying you are the rock of salvation, but he's saying you're identified by the rock of your salvation. Christ's words to this man cut right through all the struggles and the masks and the misdirection, and they call out the identity he has in Christ, his true identity, in the rock of his salvation. Right? Like Jesus isn't sidetracked by his past or his current struggles. He speaks right through it all. He speaks right beyond his failures or faults or even the masks or barriers that he's put up in his life to hide those insecurities. And we all have them. All of us do. Jesus sees right through it. See, often people operate under a kind of persona that we've developed over time according to what we've seen to be socially acceptable in society. Right? Like it starts in middle school. You know? I mean, it's why people tend to brand or label themselves. I'm in this crowd, or I'm part of that crowd, or, or this is my tribe, and so I act this way because I'm a part of that tribe or this tribe. It's like an anchor point for how we should operate in society. Like, we see others operate in a certain way, and then we naturally think, okay, they're accepted, so if I act like that or talk like that or dress like them, then I'll be accepted also. It becomes a safe persona to operate under for a people who don't understand their own reality, especially in stressful situations, or I should say their own identity, right? Especially in stressful situations, even when it seems like people are acting out or like breaking from the norm, it's often either a reaction to the personas they've carried, like an attempt to liberate themselves from those masks, but often they now just replace one reserved persona for a more flamboyant persona. Because they've seen somebody else do that. And they're like, well, I can just completely act crazy and dress all wild. Maybe that's what's acceptable because I see that they're accepted because they've done that. This is, these are the cycles that this world draws us into. This is, I mean, if, if you... Don't realize that we have an identity crisis in this world. You're not paying attention. And almost always, this stuff's just oozing with insecurity. Because at the end of the day, the question always remains, who am I really? Like, who am I created to be? How am I created to be? These are the questions of a fallen humanity who's lost touch with their creator. Over time, we tend to pick and choose and adapt, but 
and maybe even come to grips with the fact that we don't know anything about us, right? The truth is how we dress, where we live, and the social status or circles of acceptance that we have can never truly define or identify any of us in any type of real satisfactory way. This is like the heart behind a midlife crisis, you know? Because none of those things or people created us. They just become personas or masks we operate under when we feel like the pressure's on. So it can all be overwhelming because it feels like what is socially acceptable also just ebbs and flows like the tide and shifts like the sand. The truth is that there's only one person who can give you true security and declare your true identity. Only one. Only one who can give you your true name. Because there's only one who truly knows what it means to be authentically you. Because there's only one who created you. It's why his name is the name above all names. He's your creator who fearfully and wonderfully knit you together in your mother's womb. And only he can call you by name. Because he's the only one that really knows it. He's the only one who can provide that firm foundation amidst the shifting sands of a fallen culture and the anchor for your soul. His name is Jesus, and he is the rock of our salvation and the identity upon which we exist. Because in Christ alone, we find our true identity. This is why Jesus will tell Nicodemus in John 3, we'll look at that later, you got to be born again. That's what he's talking about. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is what it means when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All the labels, all the masks, all the personas, all that stuff that's constantly trying to inundate you, that you're trying to grapple with and, and anchor yourself in, they're going to let you down. Because who you truly are can only be found in who you are in Christ alone. That's it. This is who Jesus sees when he sees people, too. He sees you right through all of it. And this is what Jesus speaks to when he speaks to people. He doesn't just see labels or struggles or the misdirected identities that people attach themselves to. He sees through it all right to the heart of every person. And he speaks life into the chaos. Right? You're no longer Simon, confused and tossed about by the winds and waves of culture. You're Peter. And upon this rock-solid confession that Jesus is Lord, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because that's the kind of identity he's spoken over you. And that's actually exactly what he says in Matthew 16. Now we know that Peter's journey is actually just the beginning. And I love this. We see that his old sinful nature is still something that he's going to struggle with a lot, right? Like even to the point of denying Christ three times. And by denying Christ, Peter is denying who he is himself. He's denying who he truly is, and it eats him alive until Jesus restores him. We're going to get there later in this series, but I want you to see that Christ's love for Peter is not contingent upon Peter's ability to follow Jesus, like he doesn't define you by your struggle. He defines you by his grace. However, and this is extremely important, 
you are responsible for the identities you align with. That's why it's so important that we forgive and not define each other by our struggles. But to speak the life and the truth of Christ over each other. Like this world loves to define people by their sin or their struggle, right? Like think about this. Like some even claim that they're loving because of how they receive and even condone people in their sin. And they they say, oh, they're so kind. Like they'll say, well, you know, God made you that way. So we just accept you for who you are. And they even try to get people to identify with their sin and stop struggling with it altogether. And they'll say, well, you know, this is just who I am. Guys, that is, I, I hope that breaks your heart like it breaks mine. Because, guys, that's not love. That's condemnation. That is like the definition of condemnation. Jesus does the exact opposite. He says, who you are is who I say you are. Not what you think, not what the emotions are in this moment, not what the other people tell you. He says, who you are is who I say you are. But Like, look, we've all sinned and fallen short. But because of Jesus, we don't have to be defined by it. We don't have to identify with our sin. We can identify with our Savior. Jesus accepts the fact that we struggle, and he loves us through it. Struggling is just being a Christian. On this side of heaven, if you're not struggling, you're probably not walking with Jesus. Right? But the struggle doesn't define us. Jesus does. And he loves us in it, and he always calls us out of it because it's not who he says we are. Jesus restores and he redeems with steadfast patience and love and gentleness. And he disciplines us as a father disciplines his children. Not because he's ashamed, but because he sees the truth. Like one of my favorite movie scenes is in the movie Braveheart. I, I, I love that movie probably because, you know, it came out when I was like 12. And I'm like becoming a man and I'm like, that's what a man is, you know. Um, but I love this scene. Uh, it, where William Wallace is speaking to Robert the Bruce, and, and Robert the Bruce is waffling back and forth about leading his people to freedom. You guys remember this scene? And, and William Wallace looks at him and he says, our people know you, noble and common, they respect you. And if you would just lead them to freedom, they would follow you, and so would I. Later he looks him in the eyes and he says, there's strength in you, I can see it. The screenplay of Braveheart, not a lot of people know this, it was written by a Christian man named Robert Wallace who actually went to seminary in North Carolina. And there's a clear allegory here between Robert the Bruce and the Apostle Peter. Like Peter, just like him, he was called to lead, but instead he betrayed. If you know the movie, he betrays William Wallace. And it ends up leading to his death. And yet, his calling was so pure and true, and it struck right down to his identity that Robert the Bruce would eventually lead Scotland to freedom even after the death of William Wallace, who he himself betrayed. There's a picture of the restoration of Peter after the death and resurrection of Christ there. And it all brings so much more power. Like when we think about this first interaction with Peter here in John 1 between Jesus and, and, and Peter. 
Like Jesus declares the truth over him. And it's the truth that he's going to need to remember because he's going to be inundated with lies upon lies in the coming years. Jesus says your name is Rock. Even though he folds like a sheet under the pressure of accusation during Christ's crucifixion, Peter eventually stands on the firm foundation of his identity in Christ and becomes the leader of the church. And when he falls short in that leadership, which he even does, and we see that in the book of Acts even, his true identity in Christ never wavers. And Christ completes the good work that he began in him. If that doesn't bring rest and joy to your heart, nothing will. He's so good. He's so good. Now, I'm not talking here about flattery, right? That gets manipulative. I'm not talking about just puffing people up to trick them into liking you, (laughs) right? That stuff is empty and self-serving. I'm talking about speaking truth over each other. I'm talking about something that's way deeper than just a compliment. I'm talking about fanning the spark of true identity into that flame of consuming fire, right? I'm talking about seeing beyond labels and speaking to the heart of who we've been created to be in Christ. Like This is why the scriptures are so jam-packed with statements like build one another up, encourage one another, edify one another, point one another to the love and the grace and the truth of who they are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see that Jesus does this a lot in all of his, just about all of his interactions, if not all of his interactions with people. And remember, he's not talking even to a believer here yet. You think about this. Like he calls forth the believer in Simon by changing his name to Peter. That's powerful. Like, this is what Jesus does. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with an unbeliever, right? And they just, you know, kind of picked up somebody else's argument against Jesus and tried to wear that label as if it was their own. You ever been there? But instead of getting sucked into those argumentative cycles, the Spirit of God's like, they don't even believe that. Don't get distracted by that. They don't even believe that. They're just wearing a mask because it's what they know to do. See through the misdirection and false identities. Speak to their heart. Because that's what Jesus does. When we share life in Christ, speak to the heart. Not just the personas. More on this in a minute. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So again, the scriptures are going out of their way to show and encourage the natural response of sharing the life that we have in Christ. Like notice even that Philip and Andrew and Peter were all from the same place and they would have known each other. There's like a community that Jesus is redeeming here, okay? So now some of you might say, well, sharing life in Christ with people, you know, that don't already know him, that just doesn't really come that naturally to me. And I would say, that's not true. (laughs) It's not true. That's a lie. Don't say that. If you've truly been encountered by the Savior King of the universe and you've tasted his goodness and his grace, you're going to want to share him. The thing that makes 
it feel unnatural is the fear of what others might think. Or maybe that overwhelming weight of how important that moment of sharing might be. It can be paralyzing, right? And then, and then it can cause you to go inward instead of reaching outward. Anybody been there? I have. I often am. But this morning, I want to encourage you to trust his spirit to lead you. To lean into that natural response of sharing this life with those around you, both believers and unbelievers. To talk about Jesus, to bring up the name of Jesus, to ask questions about what people think about Jesus. Like, where are you with Jesus? Ask, I ask people, I, this is, I, kinda, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I ask people all the time, even like strangers, it, like if I'm in a room with people and we're just like stuck, like waiting room or like coffee shop or something and you're just kind of there, you know, I, I'll just be like, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I'll just sit there. I'm like, man, I really like, what do you, I know this might be, I, what do you think about this whole Jesus thing? <laughs> I'm serious. Some of you are like, he did that to me. <laughs> like, I'll say, I will. I, I'll say, I'm fascinated by it all. Like, what do, you, what do you think, right? And sometimes I've had people start witnessing to me. I love it, right? I'm like, great. This is great. Most of the time, though, when you ask that question, it's the first time the other person's ever even thought of it. Even if they claim to be a Christian, at this point in our society, the truth is, most people don't even really understand the simple message of Jesus Christ. Like, this world tries to water it all down into this agreeable message of kindness instead of the redemptive rescue mission of eternity totally lost sight of who he is. Instead of being about eternal life from eternal damnation, it gets diluted into the simply becoming a better person. And Jesus then is misconstrued into this like kind teacher, which ultimately just robs Jesus of his identity and the cross and the resurrection of his power. Right? It's why I try to weave that simple gospel statement into every sermon I preach and often every conversation I have with people, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, right? Like you hear me say it all the time, God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. It starts now, when we're, when we, the moment we place our hope and our faith in him, and we're filled with his spirit. Eternal life, everlasting life begins then. Like this is the life that we share in Christ. In his spirit with each other in our city and beyond. And so many times I start talking about that and people who previously claimed to be a Christian will say something like, wait, Jesus is God? Right? And it's like, this is where, yeah! That's like the first part of it. This is the world we live in. That makes sense. This is what happens when you don't talk about it. This is what Christianity looks like, right? Like the next step here is, is simply to say, come and see. Like let's find out who he is together and, and let him tell us both who we actually are. Remember, Philip's not trying to tell Nathaniel who he is. He's simply saying, come and meet Jesus and let him tell you, right? This is what Christianity looks like, right? Like it's leaning into who Jesus is and who he says we are as a result, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. 
You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Not what this world says I am. Not even who I say I am. Not who I say you say are. What? <laughs> you get it. I'm who Jesus says I am. Right? The name above all names. He's the only one qualified to give us our true identity. He's the only one. Again, Philip's not just making a disciple of himself. He's making a disciple of Jesus. He's introducing Nathaniel to Jesus, and he's saying, come see for yourself. In fact, let's do this together. He's not saying, I'm awesome. I met Jesus. You could be awesome too. Just do what I do. He's saying, man, come meet the one who changed everything. The truth is, while Philip may have realized already here that Jesus was the Messiah, he still didn't fully comprehend the greatness of the one who had found him and called him. In fact, if you fast forward to John 14, verse 6, you're going to see that Jesus in his last days on earth makes this statement after walking with his disciples for three years. He's walked with Philip for three years. And he says this, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Which I love that cry, right? And Jesus says to him, this is like the veil just gets pulled back right here. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? (laughs) That's one of those eternally significant mind-boggling light bulb moments, right? This is the revelation of who he is. Like Philip thought he knew and what he knew was true, but it was even bigger and greater than he ever imagined. There was more depth and greatness to be revealed And then Jesus says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So back here in John 1, Philip's simply inviting his friend Nathaniel to experience this eternally upward and inward journey into Christ with him. So Philip wasn't saying, I have all the answers. He's saying the Savior King is here. (laughs) He's saying, I don't understand it all, but this much I know. Come see for yourself and let's follow him together. This is what making disciples who make disciples of Jesus is all about. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. So this is the interaction. This is the interaction part. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. You kind of see a smile on his face when he sees him. Right? It's like, I know you. Now remember, Nathaniel was this uber-skeptical guy that the Messiah could come from Nazareth. Right? Aside from the fact that the Messiah was prophesied to have been born in Bethlehem, and aside from the fact that there were many prophecies about how people would not know at all where the Messiah was from, there's a lot of prophecies and scriptures about this, Nazareth, on top of all that, Nazareth was a podunk town in the middle of nowhere. So Nathaniel's skepticism has actually grown here into cynicism. And yet, there would be also some Bible passages to back up his skepticism. And he knew them. However, as is the case with all people who struggle with arrogance and cynicism, there's a lot that Nathaniel does not know. 
like how Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. He didn't know that. See the assumption? And how nobody truly knows where he's come from because he came from God, the Father himself. And he has no real origin outside of eternity. Like the depth of who Jesus is and where he's from could never be limited to Nazareth. But Jesus doesn't let any of Nathaniel's struggles with pride get in the way of his calling. Jesus cuts right through all that cynical misdirection and he speaks right to the heart of who he truly is and what he's truly after. You see this? Like in a way, Jesus redeems all of that prideful cynicism with a word and even affirms aspects of his personality that are good and from God. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. (laughs) Jesus isn't offended by Nathaniel's struggle, right? He sees through it and he speaks to it. And as he does, the fog of Nathaniel's cynicism begins to lift. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And here's where the veil really gets pulled back, right? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. (laughs) We we could be here all day trying to draw out the prophetic implications of that statement. There's a lot going on there. There's so many verses in the Old Testament about how sitting under the fig tree is a picture of enjoying the blessings of God under the reign of the Messiah. Right? See, fig trees had these big broad leaves that would cover you from the heat and they would produce fruit to refresh and nourish you. And they'd become a picture of the covering of God's people under the reign of their Savior and King. Throughout the Old Testament, it was all, it was very commonly tied with the coming son of David. And so often people in the Old Testament who were awaiting God's promises sat under fig trees in meditation and prayer. Right? Think Isaac, who's awaiting his father's promise of a bride who would be coming on the horizon. And Rebecca comes, where is Isaac? He's under the fig tree, awaiting the promise of God, awaiting the promise of his father. Just one example. There's so many. It's just saturated. The implication here is that Nathaniel had been in a place of deep prayer and expectation for the coming Messiah. It would explain why he was skeptical. Like, since on the surface, Jesus didn't necessarily fit the bill. But now he has no questions at all. Like, Jesus has just revealed to him both that he knows him and he sees him right to his core. In fact, he's not only the one he's been praying for, he's the one Nathaniel's been praying to. Now, I'm not sure Nathaniel gets all this. He's just like, I was just under the fig tree thinking about all this stuff. And you saw me. (laughs) Right? He gets enough. And he realizes that all of his prayers are answered in Jesus. He realizes that the answer to his prayers are standing in front of him. He does get that much. So verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now do you see how just the fig tree concept suddenly ties in with the declaration of him being the son of God and the king of Israel? He doesn't just see a prideful skeptic. He sees an honest seeker. Jesus enters into the broader dialogue between people and God. 
He sees a seeker of the truth. Maybe, maybe somebody has been, who has been let down by false saviors and is afraid of being hurt again. That would cause some cynicism, don't you think? This is why we should intercede before we interfere. Right? This is why we pray to the Lord of the harvest and catch his heart and become sensitive to his spirit before we just start rattling off our opinions at people. The truth is that effective evangelism is entering into the conversation God's already been having with people. Now, don't let that paralyze you from going there. Go there. Oftentimes, if you need to pray for those things, pray under your breath while you're in the conversation. Does that make sense? Don't use that as an excuse to back down. <laughs> it's simply helping to clarify that the one that they're longing for is Jesus himself. That's what evangelism really is. It's entering into that dialogue, that conversation that God's already been having with people. It's simply introducing them to him. This is how we cut through the misdirection and the labels and the barriers and the walls. Like, you know how many times I've been cussed out just because people were testing to see if I was going to get offended and stop talking about Jesus? Happens all the time. They're like, oh, you're a pastor? Mother, blah, 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 blah. Right? Or sometimes they're like, oh, man, I just cussed like 20 times and now you're a pastor. They slowly are like trying to find another conversation. And I'm slowly like, you're not getting away from me. (laughs) But again, these misdirection attempts, don't get offended. Like, stay the course. See through to their heart. Like, those same people often end up in tears, joyful and thankful surrender when the Spirit breaks in. And I've seen it so often. Like, listen with your ears and listen with your eyes. Like, listen for the Spirit's leading. Often people will say they don't believe in Jesus or Christianity because it's illogical. But then when you show how it's the most logical option out there, they'll still balk even illogically, right? That's when it's time to look deeper. Just ask God what's really going on here because there's always a bigger picture. Like, sometimes it's a deep trauma that happened with a parent or it's created a major distrust towards God himself. Go there. Stop fighting with them about the creation account and ask them about their relationship with their dad. This is how Jesus did things, right? Or maybe it's a tragic death or an event in their life that's caused a root of bitterness towards God. See past the misdirection. See the person and enter into the dialogue God's been having with them and invite them to come and see Jesus for who he truly is. People are complicated, but God knows. It's not just about you convincing people or winning an argument. Jesus desires to encounter them through you. So this is how we introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just an idea or a religion or an institution. He's the living God who knows them and knit them together in their mother's womb. He knows you and knit you together in your mother's womb. He's intimately acquainted with every thought and every struggle and every desire. and, And he desires for you to be intimately acquainted with him. And he desires for you to hear his heart to be in, for them to be intimately acquainted with him. Like, this is who he is. This is how we engage others as those filled with the very spirit of the one who sees them under their own fig tree. This is why I consistently pray before preaching that as I decrease, God will increase within me and speak prophetically through me. Right? It's not so you think I saw you under the fig tree. It's so you would know Jesus did. 
Now look at verse 50. Nathanael's blown away here. And then it says, verse 50, Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is a callback to Genesis 28. Remember, Nathaniel would have known God's word really well. And the ultimate commentary, this is the ultimate commentary on a dream a man named Jacob had where a massive staircase stretches down from heaven to the place where Jacob was sleeping on the earth. And angels were ascending and descending this massive staircase to heaven, right? The stairway to heaven, this is the original Led Zeppelin, they don't, they don't have a clue. That was like an LSD trip. This is the reality, okay? Some call it Jacob's ladder or the stairway to heaven, but really the language of Genesis describes something more like an ancient ziggurat structure, like a temple or a huge tower stretching to heaven with a massive stairwell in it. That's what it would have described here, kind of like the Tower of Babel that humans tried to construct in Genesis 11 out of their own strength. Didn't work out for them because they were doing it out of their own righteousness. It was the ultimate picture of works righteousness. We can get to heaven by our own glory and strength. People have been trying to do it ever since. Doesn't work. But here we see the opposite. We see God coming from heaven to earth and reaching down to us, not by any human effort, but by his alone. And so the structure is presented here as the connection point between God and humanity, heaven and earth. And so again, it sounds a lot like John 1.14, which said, And the word became flesh and dwelled or tabernacled among us. Jesus is revealing here with this little statement, he's saying that he himself is that connection point, that he is the ladder, he is the ziggurat, he is the stairway, he is the point where heaven meets earth, he's the ultimate temple, he is the place upon which the presence of God will minister and redeem all of creation, and he's inviting him to partake in it. Not only that, but the clear connection here to Genesis 28 and his statement about heaven opening and the Son of Man, it also brings up this prophetic vision in Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days is enthroned and the one like a Son of Man is given everlasting dominion. When Nathaniel would have been overwhelmed by all of this, he knew all of these passages. These are probably the very passages of Scripture that he would have been praying for or over under the fig tree. Do you see this? But Jesus is telling Nathanael that he is the point of connection between heaven and earth. And through him, the blessing of Abraham passed down to Isaac and Jacob and on through to the Messiah who's standing before him. Like Jesus is telling Nathanael that he himself is the son of man who's going to be given everlasting dominion. So there's a lot going on in the statement. Jesus was inviting Nathanael to partner in the greatest, most glorious purpose in eternity. And this would have landed like a lightning bolt in Nathanael's heart. I pray it lands that way for you too. Like it would have landed, and and, and Jesus doesn't just say, follow me, and I'll make your life great. That's not what he says. Jesus invites Nathanael into something way greater than himself. Like again, even knowing all of this, Nathaniel still couldn't comprehend the fullness of what it all meant until later. 
But the invitation was clear. Come and see. He even says, get, get excited, because this is what you're going to see. Join me in the greatest adventure and mission the universe will ever know. Like, we get so sucked up into just being saved from hell that we miss what we've been saved unto. When you share life in Christ, don't just talk about what they've been saved from. Talk about the one that they've been saved for. Right? So this is the invitation we extend. We share life in Christ with each other, our city, and beyond. So I want you to also see that if you're in Christ, you have now become a touch point of heaven on earth. That you have become part of the temple of his spirit and the body of Christ upon the earth. <laughs> like we have become the living stones that make up his temple on the earth according to Ephesians. We've been those who are bought by his blood and filled with his spirit. Like I pray that this gives you confidence and faith to operate in that unique identity that he's given you in Christ. To know that who you truly are is the unique way his spirit, spirit manifests within you. That's who you truly are. Like to rest in the reality that who you truly are is who you are in Christ and everything else is simply the sinful nature that's passing away. I pray this gives you the perspective to forgive as you've been forgiven, to not hold labels or struggles or sins against one another, but to forgive and reconcile and speak life and truth and grace over one another and to invite the rest of the world around you to share life in Christ our risen Lord. That, look, this doesn't mean that we ignore struggles or toxicity or sugarcoat injustice. True love is not blind. God sees everything. But because of Christ, those chains don't have to define you. This is the power of the good news of Jesus if you will receive it. Let's pray.